Now, we are in a series, and that series is on Romans chapter 8. And I'm not going to recap everywhere we've been thus far. What we come to right now is what is, in many ways, the apex of the chapter. It is a particular verse. It's only one verse that we're going to look at this morning. But it is uh, probably uh, one of the five most cherished verses by Christians all throughout the world. And how we have run to this particular passage as a promise from God, and it is a promise from God. Again, remember the chapter is all about what God has done. There's no indicative in there. For, I'm sorry, no imperative in there for us. There's no command for us. It's just all what is true. And so this is about God. It's about the Holy Spirit. The first 27 verses, by and large, in this chapter are about the Holy Spirit. And now we make a transition in which the rest of the chapter is going to be about God, God the Father. So God the Spirit is spoken of primarily in the first few verses, even when it talks about our adoption, it's talking about the Spirit's role in helping us embrace that, accept it, etc. Now we're going to make that transition and talk about the role that God plays in our lives. This passage of Scripture screams something to us. Is it not true that in all of life we oftentimes wonder? We ponder we think, but we don't always know. And so we wonder about all kinds of possibilities, be it great or be it awful, tragic. We wonder. Sometimes it moves into the realm of anxiety or fear, etc. But we tend to wonder, and here's the reason, because we don't possess the ability to look into the future with accuracy. We look into the future all the time. We make projections all the time. We, we pray our desires all the time. That's good. That's fine. That's right. We can't look into the future, however, with accuracy, though. And so we wonder, will this job work out? Will this relationship continue? Will we have enough money? Will and you fill in the blank. We wonder. Here's what this passage is going to tell us. God works. He knows. He is able to look into the future with accuracy. He doesn't ponder. He doesn't reflect. He doesn't think about what might happen. He doesn't look at all contingencies that are out there as we would. He knows what is going to happen because he is a sovereign God who is in control of all things. And so he works. He goes to work using things, using people, using circumstances, using events that in a way that we never could. We would like to, but we never could do it the way he does it. So we wonder, but God works. Do you know how comforting that is to know? And how simultaneously frustrating, frustrating it is to deal with? If you have physical ability, would you stand as we read literally just one verse that comes from Romans chapter 8. It is verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. You may be seated. 
Now, Paul has taken us along um, an incredible ride thus far just in this chapter, but keeping it in context with the entirety of the book, he's talking about how it is that we are made right with God. That's the grand message of the book of Romans. We are made right with God, not by what it is that we do or don't do, what we start doing or stop doing. We're not even made right with God based on what it is that we believe. We are made right with God based on what it is that God has done on our behalf. We can either accept that truth and then uh, have all of the things um, from Christ uh, become a part of us Um, His righteousness is credited to us, for example. We can either believe that, accept it, embrace it, and be changed, or we can reject it. But we are made right with God primarily because of what God has done. We embrace salvation through faith. That's what the book has been about. And here in this chapter, he's taken us on this incredible journey. Remember Romans chapter 7, it ends with, it's talking about in there, Um, the things that I want to do, I can't do, and and the things that I hate doing, that's what I find myself doing. He says, who's going to rescue me? And then chapter 8 starts out with no condemnation because of Christ. And then he unfolds that in the work of the Spirit, confirming in our minds. Right previously to this, he talks about these groanings that are taking place. He talks about how we are identified with Christ when we suffer in this life right here. And then he talks about these groanings that we have in prayer, oftentimes not even knowing what to pray. But praise God, the Spirit knows what it is that we ought to pray. And now is when he puts this part part of the Scriptures in. Suffering, groanings. And we know. Now, five phrases, statements, words that are put together in here that we have to understand. We know. This Greek word is a fantastic word. It actually has to do with vision, but it's not vision in just in terms of seeing something that is unidentifiable. It is seeing something with clarity and with understanding. But the word itself goes even farther than that. When it says that we know, here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say we feel. Nothing wrong with feeling. Feelings are good in and of themselves. They're a gift of God. They're indicators as to what's going on in in our lives. But he doesn't say that we feel. He doesn't say that we wish, meaning the things that we pour out to God. He doesn't say we re, that we request, and he doesn't say we wish, doesn't say we feel, doesn't even say that we understand. Because we're not always going to understand. In fact, the wisdom literature teaches us that we should not rely or lean on our own understanding of things. Nothing wrong with our understanding. It's good. Nothing wrong with our feelings. It's good. Nothing wrong with our ask. It's good. But none of that is sufficient. What Paul says here is that we know. It's not just an intellectual ascent to truth. It is this peace that overwhelms us because we are confident that what God is saying is true. We know. We choose to believe it. We choose to take God at his word because he has said it. Even though the circumstances in life may not reveal it to me right now, I I choose to rest and to try. I know. Now, what is it that we know? We know that for those who love God. Here's the qualifier. Not for the entire world, but for those 
who love God, limiting the number of people on the planet. Now, this is giving it to us from our perspective right now. This is the human level of understanding. It's our love for God that he's talking about here. For those who love God, later on towards the end of this verse, he's going to say, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's the divine perspective. This is the human perspective, those that love God. Those who are called is the divine perspective. It's a sandwich that lets us know he's talking about believers that are in here. Can I put these two thoughts together for you? We are called to love God. We are not called to do a whole bunch of things for God. He does not need your help. We are called to love God. And when we love God, what happens in our hearts? Don't we want to serve him? Isn't there something that takes place in which it's a delight for us to say, God, how can you use me? Now, we have uh, uh, human relationships are the same way. Don't you have friendships? Don't you have other relationships in life? Be it Maybe you have a wonderful, great boss, a boss that you know loves you well, cares for you, looks out for you, champions you, is there for you in matters professional as well as personal. And you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, this boss would do everything within their power as long as it's moral and ethical to help you in any given situation in life. Don't you want to bust your tail for that boss? When there is a loving relationship, serving follows naturally. Serving does not create love. It may help, but love creates service. We can serve without loving. I don't know that we can really love without serving. It's true in marriage. It's true in other familial relationships, aunts, uncles, nephews, nieces, cousins, etc. And it's true of friendships as well. When you love and are loved by someone, you do not find it hard to find out ways that you can meet the needs of this other person. This is what we are called to. We are called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when we see truly how it is that he first has loved us, and when we bask in that, when we sit in that, when we relish in that, it just doesn't take much to kick us in the seat and say, God, I want to serve you. We know that for those who love God, all things, not some things, not a few things, not limited to just good things, all things. There is nothing that happens that God cannot and will not use for good for those who love him. Uh, pastor, how about my own sin? Can God use even my own sin? Is it a part of all things? All things. Now, this is what blows our mind. 
I don't have a great illustration for you on this. I really, really tried to think of an illustration that could get this across, and I fell flat. Here's what I know, that God is the only being in existence who has this capability. There is nobody else in the world, no no other thing in the cosmos, in all of the universe, there's no one that has the ability that God has to take all things that occur, good, bad, beautiful, ugly, indifferent. No matter what, God can use anything that has ever happened and he can use it for good. He will use it for good for those who love him. Not for everyone, but for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, so he's going to use it. Notice that God does not say in here, Paul does not say that all things are good. He says that God will use all things for good. All things, by the way, is the subject in this clause in Paul's sentence right here. I want to remind you of a quote. We've used this before, but some of you know the name Johnny Erickson Tata. She was a girl who in her teenage years dove into a pool back in the 60s. And when she dove in, she dove in and the pool was a little shallow and she ended up breaking her neck. And she was paralyzed from the neck down. Now, over time, she learned to paint and to, to use her mouth to, to, to make extraordinary pictures. But a few months after this accident happened, her youth pastor came over to the house and in their conversation, she tells the story and she says she was uh, pondering, wondering why it is that God would do what it is that he has done. She finally just asked him the question, why would God do this? And he said, Johnny, I've been thinking about that a lot and I'm not sure that I have a great answer for you. Johnny said, the next few words would change the direction of my life. Steve Estes, youth pastor, looked at her and said, Johnny, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God is not the author of evil. God is not the initiator of sin. But God is so sovereign, so wise, that he can use evil and sin, even though he is not the author of it, he can still even use that and will use that in the life of his children for good. Now, if you can figure out how you can do that, then you're going to make a ton of money in this world. Folks will come to you and they will pay you large sums of money for you to work your magic and for you to put a spin on things. We can verbally make something okay, but we can't manufacture things so that they're good. God works all things. Work together is what it says next in our ESV. Work together is one compound word in the Greek. Paul was uh, notorious for doing this. He would take a word and he would have another word, and he'd say, I think these two words could probably go together, and he would just create a new word. And so it's a compound word that he is in here together. So it's one word, work together is actually one word in the Greek, and it's used in the present tense, and it will always be in the present tense. So God is always in the process of working things together. 
working all things. There's never a time in which God falls asleep at the wheel. There's never a time in which he turns away. I, unfortunately, have done that. Several months ago, while driving, I can't remember the name of that restaurant. It's on Tennessee Street. I was coming back from the mall. I had this wonderful little uh, uh, pop that had been given to me from Starbucks. It was a couple that I did their premarital counseling, and so it was like this little candy thing. I set it down on the seat beside me, and I'm at this, uh, I'm at this uh, uh, stoplight, and so the cars in front of me begin to move, and I said, oh, great, but I happened to notice over here that my little pop was melting. And so I reached down to pick it up and to put something else underneath it, and I felt my car stop suddenly because there was another car in front of me. And someone had foolishly stopped at a red light. I promise, I was not looking away for five minutes. It wasn't that, it was just down here, let me get that. That, that car made its way to a junkyard. God doesn't have those moments. And I know that there are many of us in this room right now that are wondering whether or not God has taken his eyes temporarily off of our lives. Does he know that this happened? And if he know, knew that this was going to happen and he watched it unfold, what does that say about him if he allowed this to happen? Many of us look at the pain that our spouses are in, that our children are in, that our dearest of friends that are in. We look at the folks that we have been praying for, not just for moments, but we've spent hours on our knees in prayer. And it seems as though God is still not yet answering what is so obvious to us that he ought to answer. If God works all things, and if he is constantly in the process of working all things, then what in the world is he doing now? And I would remind you that he starts out with we know, not with we see. It's a timeless illustration that is used of a rug And it's this tapestry and you look on the bottom side of that rug and you see things that look like just chaos as material, yarn, et cetera, has been put underneath here. And and when you see that tapestry from the back or that rug from the back, the oriental rug, you, you just cannot see the intelligent design that's on there. And most of us spend our entire lives looking from behind at what it is that we have a view of. And yet, if you turn that thing over, we get God's view. And God sees all of this that is working together, that some on the underside of this may see as utter chaos and and, and, and maybe even unloving acts of him. But to him, it's this beautiful picture. But it may not be a beautiful moment for you right now. So do you know? Or do you have to see? We know that God is the one who is working on us. So now here's the ultimate question of the morning. How much do you trust the person of God? Because if you don't have something in your life right now in which the circumstances are just difficult, hard, etc., then just wait. It's coming. And it's not God's fault. 
It's because the world that we live in is filled with people like me who make decisions that are selfishly motivated. And sometimes those decisions that I make bring a great deal of harm onto those that I love the most because I'm that jacked up. And there's a whole lot of other people like me in the world. And because sin has entered into the world, there's a whole lot of pain that's going on. And if all we have a chance to do is to see from the underneath side of the rug, we are going to make judgments about God and his goodness. But if we choose to take him at his word, to see how he describes himself, to believe that he is kind, he is just, he is loving, he is good, then I can know and I can rest even though I may not ever see. But if I demand to see, I will spend the rest of my life in frustration. Can I say it to you this way? It's always okay to question God. There's examples of that all throughout the scriptures. God invites that. God welcomes that. Question him all you want. It actually is helpful. But the moment you start demanding answers from him, you're going to be really frustrated. God let plenty of time go by with Job questioning him. Plenty of time with Habakkuk questioning him. But the moment those guys demanded an answer, uh, Job, just remind me, were you there? When I laid the foundations of the earth, was it your wisdom that all this was put together? Habakkuk, I could give you the answer, but I would give you an answer that would cause you even more questions because you can't even fathom. What he is telling us all is this. You have a view. I have a view. We all have a point of view. God has view. He sees it all. So he sees. He works all things together. One last little thing about working together before we close out our time with for good. But God has two um, aspects of his sovereign control, his sovereign will, if you'll permit me this. There is his decree, that which he decrees to happen. That is his permissive will. That means that includes all the things that he will allow to happen, even though he is not the author of these things happening. And then he has his decorative will or his perfect will. I'm sorry, uh, 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 his perfect will, sorry. Um, and I just mixed those things up um, uh, for you. His uh, uh, precept, precept will, that is his uh, perfect will. So you have his perfect will, and then you have his permissive will. And his perfect will is in a sinless environment. His permissive will includes sin in the process. And so you can have something that will happen that is awful and heinous. And that God permitted that to happen. It's not a part of his perfect will, but it's all underneath the umbrella of his will. And why he chooses not to stop some things from happening, I don't know. But he does. Finally, and this is where we really have to end, is for good. We know that for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, that all things work together for good. Now, this is the most difficult part of the morning for us to, to hear. 
Get this. He gets to determine what is good. He gets to define what is good. I would love to define that for him. I would love to give him some suggestions about how that might play out in my life. I would like for him to know how going through this particular difficulty in the late 80s might have put something inside of me, caused me to run a direction that would lead to this kind of fruit in 2023. I would love to know that this financial collapse over here at this time would lead to this kind of financial prosperity. I would love to know that this relational difficulty would lead to this relational success. I would love to give God all kinds of ideas about how past failures can lead to to future successes in the way that I want them to turn out. But do you know what God defines as good? He's going to tell us in verse 29, we're going to talk about it next week. I'm only going to point you towards it now. The ultimate good that he's talking about is being conformed to the image of Jesus. All things will work together that God will, for those who love him, will conform people more and more into the image of his son. Now, this is why this is the most difficult part of the morning. Because on one side, I rejoice. I mean, I, I leap inside. I go, yes, God is going to use everything to make me more and more like Jesus. I genuinely rejoice in that. And on the other hand, I go, snot. It's not what I want it to be. We know that for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, all things are going to work together for good. We wonder, but God works. Can I close with the, just a brief illustration that Ted Tripp reminds us of when reading something from Peanuts, a cartoon strip. He said he was reading this Peanuts strip and Lucy was watching the rain And Lucy says this, what if it floods the whole world? And Linus replies, God promised Noah that um, that would never happen again. And Lucy says, you've taken a great load off my mind. And Linus tells her, sound theology has a way of doing that. (laughs) Folks, can I tell you this? If you will take this message this morning, if you will take notes, if you will listen to it, not because of the Yahoo who gave the information, but because what I'm saying here is true. Let good theology drive how it is that you view life rather than trying to look at life and determine what your theology should be. This right here will help you in the future. You may not like it, but it will bring peace.